Well, we started a series last week entitled Easter, an old story with a new twist. If you're a guest today, what we want to do here as we lead up to Easter in just a couple weeks is we don't want to just arrive at a date and celebrate a holiday. We want to prepare ourselves. We want to spend some time before Easter comes to reflect and to pray so that when Easter arrives, we can truly celebrate it. We can have dealt with a lot of our issues already, and it can just be a time of purity, a time of celebration between us and our Savior as we celebrate the greatest event that has ever happened in the history of humanity. Now we say it's an old story because we all know the Easter story, but we're looking at it with a new twist. And what is that twist? We're looking at it through the eyes of Jesus. As we've contemplated Easter, and I have for many, 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 many years, it's always been through my eyes, looking at what happened, what the story was, what the events were, what the sequence was. I want us to look at the whole thing through the eyes of Jesus. What did he see? What did he experience? Last week, we noted that the soldiers ignored him. We started with Jesus on the cross. And as Jesus hung suffering on the cross, as he looked down through his blood-crusted eyelids, what he saw beneath him, right at the foot of his cross, are a bunch of Roman soldiers gambling for his clothes. Can you imagine? Here he is, the savior of humanity. And right beneath him are Roman soldiers who are oblivious to what is going on. Right above them, the savior of the world is dying for the sins of all humanity and they're gambling for his underwear. And last week we saw that, you know, it was a matter of over-familiarity. Crucifixion was nothing to them. It was another day on the job. They crucified lots of people. And besides, it was their prejudice that brought into it because, because he was a rabble-rouser. He was, he, he was a troublemaker. One of those Jews. And just mere distractions of life. It was something to do, pass the time until they were off duty. They could go home and be with their families and enjoy a nice meal. I can't imagine how Jesus felt. Well, today, I want to flash back in time. I want to start thousands and thousands of years before Jesus is hanging on the cross, and perhaps this all ran through his mind on the cross. I want to go back to the very first book of the Bible to start our journey today, the book of Genesis. We find the event of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. They had rebelled against God, ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now God was in the garden. He was passing judgment on the characters of that event. And in Genesis 3.14, he gets around to Satan. He gets to the serpent and says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust of the earth all your life. How many hate snakes, huh? We hate snakes, don't we? And this has come true. But God has a greater intent in his judgment against the serpent, who is Satan. He goes on to say, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed all you. But he goes on, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, we're not just talking about wanting to kill a snake. 
He is providing Adam and Eve and, and us a veiled promise that he already had a plan to redeem man. He was saying, Satan, you might have got a victory today. You might have won a battle, but buddy, I'm gonna win the war. Because I'm gonna send through the seed of woman a redeemer, a savior, and in the end, he is going to crush you, Satan. That's what he's saying. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, he refines this story a little bit more. And now he calls out Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And he singles out one man to put a blessing on this one man to, to rise up through his offspring, a great nation that were to be known as the chosen people of God, the Jewish nation. And in doing so, he says in Genesis 1 to, to Abram, he says, listen, I, I want you to leave your family and leave your home and leave everything behind, go to a land I'm gonna show you. And he says, Abram, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your descendants as great as the stars of the skies and all people of the earth will be blessed through you. Not through Abraham, that's not what God was saying. God wasn't saying, Abraham, you are so special. He would say, I'm gonna raise up a people and through your offspring, I'm gonna send that redeemer that I promised in the garden. A little while later in 2 Samuel chapter seven, he refines the story even more. When he makes this promise to David, King David, who now, having conquered all the enemies of Israel, David was a great warrior king, David decides, you know, I wanna, we've been worshiping God in that ratty old tabernacle, that tent. He deserves something better than a tent. I wanna build him a temple. I wanna build him a church. I wanna build him a cathedral. And God says, no, David, you can't do that. You got blood on your hands. But he says in 2 Samuel 7, he says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you a son. And he'll build a temple for my name. We know that son was Solomon. He built one of the wonders of the world at that time, the temple of God in Jerusalem. But then he goes on to say, he says, he's the one who will build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know that Solomon didn't live forever. So what God is talking about is that, okay, David, back in the garden, I promised the redeemer I said it was going to come through the Jewish people. And David, it's coming through your line. Your descendants, one of your descendants is going to be that Savior. Well, finally, the Savior arrived. We see it in the Christmas story that we celebrate. Luke chapter 2, among one place among others, where the shepherds were out in the field at night and they were tending to their flocks. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and a light shone round about them. And they were terrified. And yet it goes on to say in Luke 2.10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, remember I promised it to you, David. A savior has been born. He's finally here. He is Christ. He is Messiah. The Lord has come. And during his life, Jesus provided many proofs that he indeed was the savior come to this earth. In John 10, 32, Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. He said, I, I, I've, I've done all these miracles. I've defied nature. I've walked on the water. I've calmed the seas. I've turned water into wine. In Matthew 15, 30, it says, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. 
He made an intimate impact in the lives of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of thousands of people. Whoever came to him, he healed. Now his fate was in their hands. As he stood with Pilate before the people, his fate was in their hands. And his people rejected him. They yelled, crucify him. I've often wondered how many of the people who Jesus had healed were in that crowd that day. How many who had witnessed his miracles were in that crowd that day? It was not a fact that he didn't give plenty of proof of who he was and that he was unlike any man who had ever lived. I can't even imagine what that looked like through his eyes. I can't even imagine how that must have tore at his heart. God's people, the one that God had chosen out among all the people on earth to prepare the way for the Savior, now we're crying to crucify him. Why would they do that? Why did they reject him? Well, for one, he was a threat. Remember, primarily it was the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the ones stirring up all the commotion. And they were stirring up a commotion because they were threatened by Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, Scripture records, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In Mark eleven eighteen, 18, said the chief priests and all the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They got it. They knew that he was teaching with an authority and a power that they didn't have. And he was threatening their place in the religious culture, in the religious society. People were turning their attention to Jesus and away from them. Furthermore, John records in His gospel, chapter 11, verse 48, as the chief priests and the Pharisees and all got together, they were trying to figure out what in the world they were going to do with this Jesus guy. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. He says, we can't let this go on. Come on, we got to do something, guys. If this keeps on, then everyone's going to follow him, and besides that, the Romans are going to hear about it, and they're going to take our position of leading this country away, and they'll take it all over. A couple of verses later, in verse 50, Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, says, don't you guys understand what we've got to do? Don't you understand that we've got to sacrifice the life of one man in order to save the whole nation from perishing? So from that moment on, they plotted how they could kill Jesus. He was a threat. I can't imagine... How Jesus thought, Jesus must have thought, I'm not a threat. I'm your hope. I'm your redeemer. He was a disappointment. Just five days earlier before the scene that we just witnessed in the video from the Passion of the Christ was a whole nother scene. 
The same people as Jesus rode in on a colt with people laying palm branches before him and their own garments before him. And in Matthew 21, 9, it says, the crowds went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. An exuberant crowd, a euphoric crowd. Now to really understand what happened in those five days, you gotta understand the word Hosanna. Now you understand that the Bible's written in three languages. The entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek and Aramaic. Greek was the international language of the day, kind of like English is the international language today in the world of business, commerce. And Aramaic was the, the language of the common people, the language that they spoke. Now when preparing the Greek Testament into English, the English translators used the word that was in the Greek, Hosanna, and all they did was they spelled out with English letters the pronunciation, how to pronounce Hosanna. So it's, it's the Greek word. The Greek word Hosanna is the English word Hosanna now. But what I didn't realize until I did some research was that if you look in the Greek dictionary, the word Hosanna is really not a Greek word. Because those that wrote the New Testament in Greek borrowed a term from the Old Testament. They did the same thing that the English translators did. And the Old Testament was Hoshia Na. Hoshia Na, and it was only used one time in the Old Testament in Psalm 116. And it means, please save Please save, Hoshia, please, nah, save, with, the implying, with implying that now. It's like when you get pushed in a pool and you can't swim and you come up and you say, help, help, help. That's Yoshia, nah. It was a plea for God's deliverance in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's a shout of anticipation. Hoshia na, Hoshia na, Hoshia na, save us now. Finally, our Messiah has come. Finally, you're going to overthrow the Romans. Finally, you're going to release us from their occupation. And when it became apparent that Jesus was not going to do that, he became a huge disappointment to them. And so Hoshia na, changed to crucify him. He was an inconvenience. Luke chapter 18 shares a story of a young ruler who came to Jesus one day during Jesus' ministry. And verse 18 says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father. And Jesus is still talking, the guy interrupts him. He said, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. He said, I got all that. I, I, I do all that, Jesus. He says, when Jesus heard that, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then... Come, follow me. Verse 23 says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. 
See, Jesus immediately recognized his hypocrisy. When he said, I've kept all those commandments since I was a boy. Otherwise, he was saying to Jesus, I'm perfect. And Jesus knew he wasn't. And so Jesus upped the ante to see how good he really was. All right, sell everything and give it to the poor. Nah, that's too inconvenient. I enjoy my money. I enjoy my wealth. He was inconvenient. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny myself. I don't know. That doesn't sound very good. Take up a cross. That's the most shameful thing a human being can do. What are you talking about? I don't think I want part of this. It's too inconvenient. But the greatest reason they rejected him was that he claimed to be God. Luke 22, verse 66, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together with Jesus, and led, Jesus was led before them. They said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you'll not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. In other words, Jesus says, if I tell you, give you that answer, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you, well, who do you think I am? You've seen everything I've done. You know what I'm capable of. How do you explain it? Who do you think I am? He said, if I ask that, you're not going to answer that question. So he said, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? Are you deity? He replied, you are right in saying I am. And that set them over the top. So they rent their clothes and they began to scream, blasphemy, blasphemy. Jesus had given them just what they were looking for. And they drug him in front of Pilate. He claimed to be God. And so Jesus' own people rejected him. I can't imagine how that made Jesus feel. He knew it was coming. But sometimes, you know, we know something's coming in life, but that's still not actually experiencing it. And we know that he had just been in the garden praying, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But I wonder, why do people reject him today? Well, he's a threat. He's a threat. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, Jesus says, listen, I'm not looking for secret agents. I'm looking for people who are bold. I'm looking for people who will stand. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light, what? Let your light, what? Shine that they may see your good deeds. But that's not the purpose of it, not to make you out to be some great people. It says, and praise your Father in heaven. See? That's a threat to a lot of people. I don't know. I don't know about letting my light shine. You don't know where I work, Jesus. You don't know what kind of family I've got, Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. 
He's a disappointment. Jesus shares a parable in Matthew chapter 13. It's called the parable of the soils. And it talks about Jesus one day going out into the countryside and sees a a farmer throwing seed out, planting seed, planting his crops. And he uses a parable for an image, a picture that people would readily have recognized living at that day. He said some of the seed fell on the road. That's where people trample down and carts walk and horses and all that, and the dirt's all hard. And he said, that seed, the birds came and ate it up. And later his disciples said, well, we don't know, what's that parable about? He said, ah, that's Satan, see. Someone hears the word, but Satan immediately comes in and he steals the truth from their heart. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, he said, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. In other words, Jesus says, someone comes and hears the word, he gets all excited about it. And he goes to churches like the bridge and and they sing and participate in the ministries and everything is fresh and everything's exciting. This is the greatest thing on earth. But in doing so, person thinks that just because I've become a child of God, just because I'm serving God, everything in my life is going to be perfect. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, then when there's financial problems and I lose my job or I lose my marriage or my kids are rebellious, I mean, where's Jesus? I thought Jesus was going to protect me from all that. They're disappointed, and they fall away. Why they're rejecting today? He's an inconvenience. That same parable goes on to say in verse 22, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of this wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. In other words, there's a whole other group of people that they hear the word, they hear the gospel, they hear about Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of humanity, but they're too distracted, the worries of this world, I've got this and I've got that, and, and, and they're so worried in making money and, and attaining material goods that the word really never has an impact on them, never has an effect on them. And so them hearing the word for all practical purposes, was an exercise in futility. It was unfruitful. Too inconvenient. I don't have time. You don't understand my life. You don't understand my schedule. And so many reject him because of that. Oh, I know that Jesus, when he thinks of this, looks down through his eyes and says, don't look at me as an inconvenience. Look at me as your greatest opportunity. Don't you understand everything I've challenged you to do, every sacrifice I've asked you to make? My Father has promised to restore and to bless you a hundred times over that. And remember that this life that we're living now is just preparation for the eternal life to come. And Jesus says, when I come back, I'm bringing my reward with me. And then I'll reward each person according to what they've done. Yeah, Jesus is up front. Jesus is honest with us. 
He never promises us it's going to be a bed of roses. In fact, you know, he, he said, we've got to pick up your cross and follow him. But he also says, you can't outgive God. God will bless us far greater than any inconvenience we ever experience for the cause of Christ. Why do people reject him today? The biggest reason is that he claims to be God. That's what sticks in the craw of culture. That's what sticks in the craw of postmodernism. Jesus, talking with his disciples, in this case, Philip, Jesus is talking about going to his father, and Philip says, show us the father. Who's the father? And in John 14, 9, Jesus answers, do you not know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus said in other occasions, he said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you see the Father because we are one. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there's a controversial verse for you. As Jesus looks down at me today, and he looks down at you today, and he knows that sometimes we don't let our light shine. He's a threat in our workplace. He's a threat in our family. He's a threat to our comfort. Sometimes Jesus looks down and he sees us that we're disappointed in him. We've experienced some hardship and we actually blame him for it. Sometimes it's a matter that the life he has challenged us to live is just too inconvenient. Sometimes it's that, really, Jesus is the only way? Come on. There's all kinds of religions out there, and they're all getting us to the same place. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. That was his first words from the cross. And that's his word to me. That's his word to you today. He sees it. He knows it. He understands it. And although he has the right to bring untold judgment, untold hurt into our life, Scripture says he sits at the right hand of the Father now, and he's continually saying this over and over, Father, forgive them. They don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I look at that verse, and I see Jesus saying this, I have not come to call the righteous, but Pete Tokar to repentance. That's who I've come. And you could put your name in there too. See, that's Jesus' heart. 
That's looking through his eyes at, at our lives and, and our times when we don't live like we really want to live and our times when we fall down and when we fail. Jesus says, forgive them, Father. It's, it's, they don't understand. They live in this life, this culture that is so difficult. But those are exactly the people that you sent me to redeem. John 5, 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. We don't get it right a lot, don't we? I don't. Maybe I'm alone. I don't think so. And I bask, knowing that I bask in the forgiveness of Jesus. I bask in the love of God. That's my hope. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. See, some in the world, when they hear Jesus say, John 14, 6, they hear it this way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that's not how Jesus intended it. That's not the character of Jesus. Jesus is, I'm the way. I know there's a lot of people telling you there's a lot of ways out there and it's confusing. And I know you, sometimes you just don't know what's true. I'm, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the one who has power to give you eternal life. He says, no one's coming to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to chase it. You don't have to try to earn it. You can't. I'm it. Just believe me. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. God loves us today. God loves you. No matter where you are in life, no matter where you're in relationship with him, he loves you. And that's what Easter is about. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save those of us who are struggling in this world. Let's bow our heads. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. You've never crossed over from death to life. You can do it right now. God brought you here to give you that chance. Say, how do I do it? You just ask. You just do what Paul said right now. Just confess with your mouth that Jesus is the only way. Not in a negative way, but in a hopeful way. Believe in your heart that God did send Jesus, and Jesus did die on the cross, and he was buried, and on the third day rose again. And because he conquered death... He alone has the authority to forgive sin. Scripture says in 1 John 5, 13, these things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John 1, 12 says, yet to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him 
We'll never perish but have eternal life. Father, I pray for that man, that woman here today, who right now, your spirit is is bearing witness with that. This is true. This is real. And even now, you are drawing them to yourself. God, I pray they will not resist, but right now, they will just pray a simple prayer. I confess, God, that Jesus is the way. I get it now. There is no other way but Jesus. You've made it simple, not confusing. It's one-stop shopping. It's just Jesus. I believe with my heart everything that you've revealed about Jesus. And Jesus, because you conquered the grave, I'm asking you now to be my Savior. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. If 